You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I tried to learn whether life without consciousness might be preferable to consciousness without life. But to calculate the answers, he needed to count several secret variables simultaneously upon his misty fingers and soon lost track of where he had started. Of course, he could not inscribe the sand with anyone's memorial stick, nor borrow pen and paper from me, being utterly permeable in relation to objects. Well, then, you wouldn't be able to lick anyone's leg, I reminded him. My satisfaction, which I could not help but bask, consisted of the fact that this ghost was dead and I alive. I was safer, more superior, less likely ever to be dead. His eyes kept goggling. I asked if I would die soon. Prune, the ghost echoed in bewilderment. We continued to discuss the matter of suffering, and he suddenly cried out, But just now I can't quite remember what suffering means. So sorry. How do you spell it? S, U, beg your pardon, F, S. Are you quite sure? He had forgotten just enough to make a conversation exasperating, but not enough for him to give up hope of communicating his thoughts, such as they were, and of listening to me, in an effort to remind himself of what life was, and perhaps even to escape, however momentarily, into some pretense of life of his own. And how I longed to escape from him. I would have done nearly anything to avoid becoming his younger brother. Unfortunately, it wasn't up to me. As for him, was it his fault that he wasn't alive? Many times I have seen old men go through the motions of picking up the young girls who would joyfully have let themselves be carried away in ancient days. It's as if one needs to learn over and over the lesson of loss, and even then one hopes that since the rules altered before, they might change back again. But they never do, at least not for the better, and although I sought to be as patient as I could, I increasingly resembled the ignorant, bustling child who grows annoyed when its grandfather fails to accompany its lunges to and fro. William T. Bowman is the author of the National Book Award-winning novel Europe Central. His works of nonfiction, Rising Up and Rising Down and Imperial, were both finalists for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He won the Penn Center Award for Fiction, the Writing Writers Award, and the Strauss Living Award. His new book is Last Stories and Other Stories. Thank you for joining me, William. Well, thanks for having me. I sure appreciate it. What brought you to create what I kind of consider to be like an atlas of the afterlife? You know, I try to have as many experiences as I can and to enlarge my understanding of everything that concerns me. And in the midst of life, we are in death and vice versa. So, you know, the older I get, the closer I come to death, the more people I know who die. And it becomes a very interesting thing to think about it in a way with less fear than when I was younger. I'm more neutral about it now. But I like making thought experiments. I guess maybe every novelist does. And 
I used to say, well, what would it be like, you know, if I could be Shostakovich or Stalin or anybody? And so now I'm trying to think, what would it be like to be dead? And of course, it wouldn't be like anything, probably, if there's just oblivion. But what if, say, there were eternal consciousness in the rotting corpse? That would be the absolute worst case, I could imagine. So that's a good one to consider, like a good Boy Scout. Or there could be some bizarre sort of afterlife. But when we think about death, we think about loss and dissolution. So if the dead could come back to us, I imagine that they would seem defective in some way. You know, you mentioned Shostakovich and Stalin, and I really noticed the similarity between this book and your Europe Central and the, the way it's kind of structured and laid out. And it seems to me that this parallel was deliberate, that in that book you were exploring the mid-20th century and the way politics tore people apart and the way it was used to put them together for good or ill. And in this book, you are kind of doing the same thing with death. The difference being that with Europe Central, you could use history to... You, we have the facts. The only way to explore death is with our imaginations. That's right. Um, and so you can do a certain amount of research in folklore, for instance, and you find out that in Central Europe, the idea of consciousness in the dead tends to be associated with gruesome malevolence. And in Japan, it's associated more with kind of sad, beautiful attachment. And so why not imagine oneself into both of those worlds and all the others that one can think of? We have to assume that most people in the human race have thought about death, and there are certain maybe entrees to the collective unconscious. If enough people think that death is this way, then why not entertain that as a fantasy for a little while and see what we can make of it? I think you do such a great job in this book of building all these worlds based on these beliefs that you've researched so assiduously. It, it, you seem to like take a belief and then extrapolate the world, uh, fanta world of the fantastic based on that belief. And some of your stories just approach death kind of. And it's interesting that in a book that ends up in really gruesome and macabre places, you start with a kind of a delicate approach to death. And and so I'd like you to talk just a little bit about creating, you know, you, why you chose to start in uh, Serbia, Croatia with escape. Well, I knew that if those three somewhat realistic war stories were put anywhere but at the beginning, they would seem sort of peculiar. Once you get into the supernatural, it's strange to get out of the supernatural and then go back into it. So those needed to go first, and they form a kind of triptych. There was a real-life case of a so-called Sarajevo, Romeo and Juliet, who were killed. And then after this happened, people started distorting it and denying it. And for some people, it became an urban legend, even though it was on television every year. And so I could watch and describe the decay of this real event into something like its own ghost. Once I had that trilogy or triptych at the beginning, 
since that was about Yugoslavia and Serbs, then my next story should logically be the one that you mentioned, who is about a Serbian sea captain. And since that took place in Trieste, then the other Trieste stories should follow there. And then Maximilian, since he was in Trieste for a while, can then be the bridge that leads into Mexico and so on and so forth. It's a really fascinating uh, exploration of the world and, and the beliefs and the beliefs that we create. Now, one of the things you said that really interested me was that the story kind of became a ghost of the event. And I think that's one of the most, for me, what holds the most interest about ghosts is that we're all constantly haunted, not necessarily by the spirits of the dead, but by the things we've done and the mistakes we've made and, and That's true. regret. And so haunting is a much more complicated thing than the haunted mansion. Lord Dunsany once wrote a story about some people who at night would be sitting around the fire and their sins would come to visit them. And their sins were like these horrid giant cats that would jump up onto their laps and people would have to look into the faces of their own sins and pet them and could never separate themselves from them. I thought it was a really great story. Uh, Lord Dunsany is a really interesting author, and I think you riff off of those kind, that kind of notion and that kind of language of the fantastic in this book. I, and I was really happy to see that because that's not the direction that the fantastic seems to be going in general these days. So who do you think is, um, is the greatest fantasy author who ever lived? Um, that's a good question. I I'm thinking, well, I like Clark Ashton Smith. Oh, he is great. Lord, He's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Dunsany. I think Lovecraft's fantasies are highly, are not really, really well known among his stories, but I think they're also some of his best work. And um, there's a fellow named Edward R. Whittemore. I don't know if you're familiar no, with him. No, I've never heard of him. He wrote a series of books called The Sinai Quartet, and they are marginally fantastic, but they're really peculiar and very well done. How interesting. Um, so uh, what makes you ask me that question? I'm just curious. Oh, because um, we're talking in a way about supernatural precursors of mm -hmm. the books that we read and write now. And I look back on a lot of those books that I haven't read for many years with such fondness. And, uh, and sometimes um, I like to reread a couple of them. Did you ever read The Nightland by William Hope Hodgson? Oh, well, yes, that was another one. I was trying yeah. to reach for him. Yeah, yeah, his stuff is really beautiful. I think so. And last time I was up at Powell's, they have a print-on-demand kiosk. So I printed this thing off, and you know, it had this stupid cover and some synopsis on the back that didn't add up. But I was so happy to read it again. It was just a lot of fun. Well, this is interesting because, I, as they say, you know, the, the golden age of science fiction is 15. And I think one of the things that you talk about and address in this book is this a uh, vision of men. And, and this particularly comes in the final story, but I think this runs throughout the book as operating at a pole between, um, I think many men live their lives in a quantum state between the ages of 18 and 85. Either were completely adolescent 
or we're staring death in the face. And I think that's an interesting vision of men in particular. And, and, I, and I think it gets to the way we view death in this book because it joins those two perspectives. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think that maybe for me, the most uh, maturing experience has been being a parent. Then I realized, okay, there's this other life that, you know, must separate from my life and go its own way. And I'm lucky to still be very close to my daughter. But knowing that I have done my reproductive duty and I'm sort of out of the picture now in a way, I'm already a ghost. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I have a ghost in my son's lives. <laughs> it's not bad, yeah. Um, my best friend always says, to be old is to be irrelevant. And being irrelevant is actually a great thing. Then you can sort of float around, <laughs> no one pays any attention to you, and you can watch the workings out of life. Yeah, we can haunt our family <laughs> with, with complete security. You know, uh, one of the things that's a joy to read in this book is the, the way you uh, have these riffs that recur throughout the book. It's a very echoic book. I really like that. And I'm wondering how many of these you discovered, how many you built in. I'm thinking of the white legs, the counting things that kind of appears across these cultures. Were these things you discovered in the cultures? Yes. You know, in traditional vampire lore, it often turns out that the vampire is obsessive, compulsive. And all you need to do is leave him to count grains of rice or something like that, and then he'll be occupied until dawn and he can't harm you. And it's very, very strange when you think about it. Why? Why should vampires be this way? Why should, you know, a, a silver bullet be so effective? All these sorts of things. And it's completely arbitrary. It, it doesn't matter what the rules are. It's like what Michael Walzer once said in his book on just and unjust wars, it doesn't matter exactly what the rules are on combatants and non-combatants. What's more important is that there are rules. And it's the same thing, I think, if you're going to conceptualize the conscious dead or the, the perception by you of death or something of the sort. You can't do it at all. It's impossible. And therefore, it might as well be arbitrary. And once enough people do it, then it becomes sort of ritualistic and it gains its own maybe archetypal power, I think. Talking about the Serbian triptych that opens this book, it's really rich and atmospheric. Did you spend time at Ser in Serbia during the war? I sure did, yeah. I was in, in Yugoslavia once right after uh, Tito died. It was still, you know a uh, non-aligned socialist country at the time, and they were worried that the Soviet Union was going to invade. The next time I went back was uh, in 92. So I was in Sarajevo during the siege, and I went to the Serbian Republic of Krajina, and then um, I went to Belgrade several times in 94, and then in uh, 98 I went to uh, Kosovo shortly before the American airstrikes began. Talk about that experience and what, what took you there. I mean, was that just wanderlust or journal, journalism? Um, I was writing a long book about violence called Rising Up and Rising Down. It took me about 23 years to write it. But 
I wanted to understand when violence is justified. So that meant not only did I have to read a lot of history and a lot of political science and a lot of memoirs, but I needed to go to violent places and talk to victims and perpetrators. So that's what I did. You know, you talk about your works of nonfiction, and this strikes me in many ways. It's kind of a work of nonfiction in that it's based on all these cultural rituals. And as we discussed earlier, the only way we can explore death in any way with, is with the human imagination. And I, how much did of your nonfiction work inform this? I, obviously, it it deeply informed the Sarajevo parts. Yes, it does. Um, you know, some of my my grief over my father's death, he, he died of T-cell lymphoma like four or five years ago, or, you know, the grief that I felt when my little sister drowned, you know, that's, that's a nonfiction component. Why not put that in and, and try to see what that teaches me about death? And, of course, other people have stories to tell me about their own losses. This Japanese story about paper ghosts came about because I have a homeless friend who gets pneumonia every winter, and he often says, you know, Bill, I just wish I could get pneumonia and die. I'm so tired of this. And at one point, I hadn't heard from him for a while, and I wondered whether he was dead on the street somewhere. And I kept thinking about him and worrying about him. And that was, you know, in your phrase, the nonfiction component behind that particular story. Well, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it. Uh, so there's uh, elements of uh, memoir in here as well. I think there have to be. Anytime you're creating fiction, if, if you want there to be some sort of life in it, you have to start with what you feel and what you know, and you have some rough understanding of how what you feel compares to what others feel. And you can try to dial in on the difference when you're creating some variant consciousness. You know, um, that kind of, using that kind of uh, approach is really interesting. And I, that's what I think gives some of these stories, all these stories, a really a, a, a deep inner life. Even something like uh, The Treasure of Jovo Sitrovich. Now, this is a, a really elaborately written story. And that's... Uh, your your prose is is very Dunsanian in that. Your approach to creating the world is kind of crystalline. But the characters are very achingly real. So talk about, you know, filtering all that kind of uh, emotional understanding through a prose filter that's going to be appropriate to the subject in the world you're creating. There's something very haunting about... Trieste. There's an area by the waterfront which was really in full flower in the time of Empress Maria Theresa. I actually set the Sertovich story a little bit earlier, committed a few anachronisms, but since it's all ghost stories, who cares? But the Serbian Orthodox Church is right on this old canal, and it's stunningly beautiful. And you look at some of the the frescoes, you look at the icon stasis and you think, wow, you know, all these rings and halos and gold everywhere and saints and what would it be like 
to be able to go up into that heaven and walk around. And, uh, and one of the very, very quintessentially Serbian saints is Prince Lazar, who is celebrated because he chose to lose the war against the Turks. They gave him the choice between either winning the battle or losing and being killed, but having some kind of eternal glory for Serbia. And it's very, very strange and eerie and paradoxical. And in a way, that's um, the kind of choice that, that we all have to make with death. We're going to lose one or the other thing. Probably we're going to lose both things. But maybe the, the human choice is to say, all right, I accept the loss of my life and everything associated with me in exchange for some sort of romantic glory, which might be a complete illusion on my part, or maybe it means that I'm doing something good for others, that my name will live on, or that my my good deeds will benefit others after I'm gone. But that was sort of the the germ of the story, to imagine, what if you really did have that choice? Would you choose to live on forever? Would you rather lose the battle against death? And would that be better? You know, since we humans have to lose the battle against death, there's a certain amount of sour grapes in almost all the stories we tell. There's always some reason like, oh, yeah, it's actually better off to die. And I'm not at all convinced of that. But it didn't go well either way for poor Sertovich. Well, I love this kind of the way you wove in the, the story of the fantastic in that book. And this brings me to another thing. I mean, that's like a complete novel. And you have a couple of novels in this book. There's like, I think, three or four things that are pretty darn close to novels and certainly novellas. Talk to me about understanding which stories are going to be longer. Is that just organic process for you? Yes. I never know how long a story is going to be. I was quite surprised, for instance, at how long the uh, listening to the shell story uh, became. And um, when we were 17, I thought would be much shorter. The Banquet of Death is a very short, gruesome one, which I thought would be much less gruesome and a lot longer. I mean, you just you never know. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's so many wonderful uh, stories in here. Um, the the Trench Ghost is one, I think, that has this wonderful vision of, of what a ghost is. And, and that's one of the first stories in here where you start to kind of analyze, take a, a, an analytic uh, approach to what a ghost can and can't do. And those kind of rules, which you had talked about earlier, are really fun for the reader to, to understand and then see them play out. My idea is that eternal post-mortem consciousness might not be too different from having to go to a boring nine-to-five job. <laughs> in either case, you're in this eternal sort of mediocre situation, and there are a lot of things you would like to do that you can't do. Now, uh, you uh, then take us to uh, Bohemia and Trieste, and Bohemia is such an interesting uh, I want to say country, and I want to say notion, because it is both, and it is neither. So I'd like you to just talk about your experiences in Bohemia, the places you visited, and 
your notion of what Bohemia is. I've always liked that uh, Smetana opera, Libusha. It's all about this Bohemian princess. I've only been to Prague a couple of times. The first time actually was right after I'd been stuck in Sarajevo during the siege, and I was quite hungry. It was great to feast myself on lots of roast goose and sauerkraut and drink lots of beer. But there is something so ethereally Eastern European about Prague. It just looks like the kind of place that is filled with um, secret passages and ghosts and golems and so forth. There's a Gustav Mayrink uh, story, which is set in Prague, another science fantasy story that's um, kind of spooky. And I thought, you know, this is where a lot of the vampire folklore comes from, too. So why don't I just go to town with this stuff? It, it's it's really fun that you did. And mm-hmm. I have to say, I'm coming, kind of surprised because, you know, you have a, a reputation and a huge body of work that's ultra-literary, you know, the top, you know, award-winning nonfiction. And it, to, to see you take on the supernatural, I thought was really fun. Well, um, I had a blast with it. And uh, sometimes, you know, when I'm lying in bed and uh, having insomnia, I start imagining, well, what if I had to wander through William Hope Hodgson's Nightland? How would I manage to find, you know, the woman I loved in the lesser redoubt and avoid all these monsters and get back safe with the earth currents? And I just have the time of my life with this stuff. So it was fun inventing some of it for myself. And I'm really glad that you kind of uh, took from those sources. The story that heads up Bohemia is The Faithful Wife, which is one of the best and most unusual vampire stories I have ever read. Oh, it's really you. fun, too. <laughs> it's got, it, it has a happy ending. That's right, a happy ending of sorts. It's interesting, again, to think, would it really be sour grapes the way that uh, we're always saying, oh, how awful it would be, you know, if our loved ones came back as vampires? And these two people really love each other for better and for worse, and maybe for worse as far as some of the people around them are concerned because Milena needs blood. She's got to do what she's got to do, but that doesn't mean she can't be a faithful wife. Or or an excellent seamstress. That is true, with the help of some magic spiders. <laughs> One of the things that also makes a, a collection like this really fun to read are the way you thread uh, these references from one story to the next and take us from one place to the other and build in this kind of giant self-referential universe. There's like you could probably just make an entire a web page out of this book with the, like the different uh, characters and where they appear. Well, that's my hope that really death has got to be all one place. And so it might seem that we go into death by many, many different doors. And the, these doors are maybe carved in different styles. And some of them have lovely curtains in front of them. Some of them are old, dark archways, and some are just tunnels. You never know. But it's got to be the same human experience of being dead, I suspect, that we're all going to. But we come to it from different cultures and different beliefs. So 
these different doorways, I hope, do interconnect for that reason. Speaking of doorways, we have a little bridge story called Dorothea, who's a minor character in The Faithful Wife, and she reveals herself to have some powers. And this is your our first experience with a witch in your book. Yeah, and that's one of the, the genuinely happy stories in the book, I think. For her, going to the graveyard is sort of like going to the cow shed. It's just not such a big deal to call up the spirits of her mother and her father and her husband and so forth and argue with them and in the end take the spirits of these three little girls who have probably been murdered and let them become her daughters. You know, um, two, it was nice earlier on in the book. I think I, maybe I'm trying to remember what page it was. It was nice to see that you name-checked Lovecraft earlier on, and he also gets one later on in the book. And I think this is a classic uh, uh, tradition in the genre itself. So you play well with the genre in a kind of metafictional manner. Um, yeah, Lovecraft is so much fun. I mean, I think his absolute best work is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Mm -hmm. Um, What an ultra-neurotic or maybe psychotic person. He must have been um, (laughs) very unpleasant. He he said, you know, he thought we needed some kind of fascist system. He was a horrible racist. So a lot of his monsters, you know, are based on the stereotype of this or that ethnic group. He's really Johnny One Note, kind of the same way that Poe can be. Mm -hmm. So it's great to visit him. He's one one of these doors to death, and he's just so baroque and over the top. I don't think I would want to stay in a Lovecraftian hell for very long. I don't think anybody <laughs> would. <laughs> now, uh, but you actually do a pretty darn good job of creating a one in the story, The Judge's Promise. What a fabulously distressingly awful underworld <laughs> you create. And the descriptions of the underworld in that are so wonderful. And this is, I'd like you to just talk about um, the, the world building aspect in this book, in that story, and also throughout the book, because you do very carefully create these worlds with different rules and slightly different looks. One leads to the other, it seems. Well, it occurred to me, you know, that if this bohemian idea was that the conscious dead are our enemies, then everybody in the graveyard had to be the enemies of the living who then had to try to destroy them. You know, when I think about the the people that I used to know who were dead, it's hard to really think that they are my enemies and or that they're much of anything at this point. So why not say that it's sort of unfair to these, even to these horrible trolls and ghouls and vampires to say that they're any worse than these horrible inquisitors and witch burners and people who used to torment Jews and everything else. Let's just say that it's the class system. This also gets to this kind of one of the things that I really like about fantasy fiction in general is the way that it allows us to externalize um, and talk about things that are completely off the table in normal fiction and normal polite conversation. You can just take all that stuff and turn it upside down and look at stuff that's really unpleasant in a pleasant manner. So, 
That's true. Did you ever read a book by David Lindsay called A Voyage to Arcturus? The Voyage to Arcturus? Yeah, David yeah. Lindsay, another yeah. one of the classic old-style fantasy novels. Yeah, I think that's a masterpiece. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about that is exactly what you said, that this protagonist, Maskell, as he walks around on this alien planet, he gets different organs that start growing on his body, and he has different feelings, like... Uh, he might feel very exalted or very full of hatred or this or that, but it's all a different way of being. And they all turn out to be sort of corrupt and doomed, but that's kind of beside the point. But it's so interesting to, instead of say, well, I wonder if I, if I felt like this or acted like this, instead, so let's make it a parable. What if I grew this particular organ and then I could really relate to the world in a completely different way? And it's fascinating. Now, when you brought up A Voyage to Arcturus, this brought up a memory for me. And I wonder if you have a similar memory of uh, an old line of paperbacks, the Ace, uh, the Adult Fantasy series. Oh, Valentine Adult Valentine. Fantasy. Valentine, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's where I first saw that. And they used to have such beautiful covers, too. Oh, yeah. Those yeah. are such great books. I, I used yeah. to buy those off the rack in a Lucky's Market. Yeah, me too. Kavina. That's where I first saw the Nightland, too, although uh -huh. it turned out that it was the abridged Nightland. Uh -huh. So I got to read the unabridged for the first time when I downloaded it from Powell's. You know, uh, there's a company called, a publisher called uh, Nightshade, and they have some beautiful hardcovers of the complete uh, William Hope Hodgson. Oh, really? Yeah, so I it might go to their website and check them out because they, they've been reprinting a lot of that fantasy and complete editions and hardcover versions that's nice to have. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I would like to reread The Boats of the Glen Carrig, so maybe I'll do that. Yeah, that yeah, they, they have that. I know that. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, let's get back to you. And uh, June 18th, this is a really interesting story about uh, the... Uh, it's a little more on the historical side uh, about Empress C Carlotta and the de death of Maximilian. Um, yeah, my uh, my mother is always very sorry for Maximilian and thinks it was terrible that he was executed. And I feel sort of sorry for him as a human being, but I think that uh, Juarez probably did the right thing because he was just being used as a tool. If they had let him go, he probably would have come back to Mexico again with some other invading force. And poor Mexico is kind of sick of being invaded and occupied. From what I've read, Maximilian was a fairly shallow person. He had a fairly superficial, unhappy marriage. Carlotta, I think, was very, very lonely. And maybe the best thing for him was that he was able to become a martyr. But it was interesting to imagine the last night of his life, the dreams that he would have. And I just tried to say, okay, Bill, suppose that you're dying of something or other, and you think this is maybe the last night of my life. How am I going to feel? You know, if I'm, if I'm really entering into this thought experiment, I'm going to feel very sad. I'm going to feel a certain amount of fear, maybe some resentment toward the people I've left behind or... Who's to say? But I'm definitely going to want to remember things. And so I've been to Maximilian's castle uh, in Trieste. And I thought, okay, he would probably remember that. And I could describe the way the ocean looked there. And 
I thought about the various women in his life, and then I imagined him as a uh, traditional Mexican sacrificial victim, maybe in the Aztec cosmology. You know, there were so many different kinds of victims that they had, but one kind was someone who would be treated as a very, very rich person who wouldn't have much to do except to sleep with beautiful women and play the flute and smell flowers. And after a certain point, they would take all these away from him and send him up to the top of a pyramid where his flutes would be broken and his heart would be cut out. And I thought, you know, what a great metaphor for Maximilian's career and maybe for all of our careers. (laughs) As I read this uh, collection, one of the things I noticed is you are in every story. You are best. there as as I telling the story, and that's an interesting decision for you to make. Well, tell us about making that decision. In a way, it seems more honest if I do it that way because, of course, it's me wondering this stuff about death and trying to project myself into these situations. That's the only way I could do it. I could say, what if I were Maximilian? be a lot harder for me to say, what if you were Maximilian? How would I write that? So, you know, as Thoreau always used to say, you know, I wish I weren't just writing about myself, but there's no one else I know half as well. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> that, that's a good one. Um, I, I have to say that The Cemetery of the World is another fabulous piece of uh a, a wonderful riff on the vampire legend and you give us you know the plague ship at the beginning that's you know the the perfect uh right out of dracula that's sort of a poe like beginning in a way mm-hmm. um it could be almost like the mask of the red death or something you know i get sort of tired sometimes of having all these vampires dumped on so why not make this very very creepy vampire or whatever she is, um, into a positive character. And, uh, and so um, I imagine this, uh, this young man has been disappointed in love and is very, very bitter against women. He meets uh, La Llorona and things kind of work out for him. And then after that, he learns to love women and wants to be with a really, really big woman, someone with a lot of flesh on her who's going to occupy him very happily. And so, again, it's a story that sort of has a a happy ending through a few gruesome twists. Another story I think that you just do a fabulous job of world building on is uh, Two Kings in Zinagava. I mean, what a great and absolutely over-the-top, gruesome, insane story that is. I... It must have just been a blast to write that. <laughs> yeah, it was. Huh? <laughs> um, and uh, I just enjoyed having that awful flying head kind of imagine that it was <laughs> it was good. Yeah, um, I think it was. That story is just it, it's a blast, and it that get, takes on another classic supernatural riff. This journey to the other world, which you do explore at greater length in uh, the the following section in Scandinavia. Now, Scandinavia is an interesting place. Here, again, in each section, you modulate your prose very deliberately and very clearly and carefully. Uh, 
for you as a writer, were you doing, you wrote this over a long period of time. Did you do it sequentially? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, the last time I was in Norway, in Stavanger, I, uh, I worked on, I think, three of those Norwegian stories at the same time. But uh, I had already written uh, a couple of others the previous time I was there. The Japan stories were based on notes that I took in Japan, but often I don't know if my notes are going to come to anything. I had a description of the, the place that I call Rainy Mountain, and then I started looking in some old shrines and saying, now what kind of monster would live in this shrine? And the, the fittings and appointments of these shrines tend to be brass. Things are lacquered and tasseled. So I thought, okay, I've got to imagine some ghost who's sort of like that. So that's sort of how I did it. And you mentioned a word that I like, and I'm happy to that this book is filled with them, monsters. <laughs> I think monsters are a highly underrated uh thing in fiction. They, they are. They really allow you to do things that you can't do with any other kind of trope or literary device. And I think you have a real seem to have a real innate understanding of how to put them in a story and bring them to life because that's what's so often lacking, I think. Yeah, it seems as if the consciousness of a of a real monster must be, you know, somewhat different from our own. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience, say, of being out in the, in the forest and looking into the eye of a, of a wild elk or deer or something like this, and um, the animal is very aware of you, but it, and it's, it's watching you, but not in a human way. There's something else going on, and you never know, you know, if it's a cow, elk protecting her calves in the spring, whether she's going to charge you. And you can't even tell that in her eye. You can just tell that something is happening. And I think with a monster, it must be like that the monster is not going to necessarily feel remorse or guilt. Uh, probably the monster is going to feel hunger. Uh, that's a pretty universal thing if the monster wants to eat you. But uh, somebody like La Llorona is, is quite comfortable with herself when she's eating all her lovers. That's what she's been doing forever. She's some kind of a goddess. And that's just her thing. That's who she is. She's death, but she's a, a sexualized female death as opposed to any other kind of personifications of death. And, and one of the things that we find in all these personifications of death, they're highly uninformative at when average humans ask them about death. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's always fun for me. And, and when we were 17, the poor protagonist is always hounding his high school girlfriend, and she'll tell him something, but it's always just a tease. It, you never get any idea of really what's going to happen to him, and in part because that's very appropriate for that story, that she would be a tease, and she's always been a tease, and he kind of likes it. But obviously... I don't really know what there would be to learn in death, and my guess is nothing. And therefore, all the things that uh, that the dead tell us really, in the end, have to be baloney. <laughs> uh, stories, which is what this book is just full of. Uh, when We Were 17 takes yet another kind of prose turn because, well, 
when let's get back. I want to just ratchet back to a story that I thought was really wonderful in the other world vein was the narrow passage. This is a really beautifully work of fairy tales. And this whole book is filled in a sense with uh, adult fairy tales, I would I would call it. And that's what it is. Yeah, I would say so. These are like, um, and they all fulfill the traditional role of the fairy tale and the kind of warning stories of things, you know, don't do this. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, it has to happen. Right. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about just uh, the, you give us a lot of notes in the back. How do you see us reading those notes as readers? As a writer, do you th see us flipping back and forth? Reading the whole thing and reading them, or no? Um, I don't think it would matter if a reader never looked at the notes. On the other hand, suppose that somebody read one of those Norwegian stories, you know, like the Narrow Passage, and thought, "Oh, you know, this kind of speaks to me in some way." And then maybe as a result of the notes, the person would find out about the Elder Edda. Mm -hmm. uh, and say, wow, I want to read that. And then maybe the next time that person picked up Tolkien, he'd see, oh, actually, look, even the catalog of dwarves comes from the Elder Edda. How great that I know that. And this is an important part of world culture. And it's very, very profound stuff. So that's really the, the purpose of the notes. And, and I have to say, too, uh, that a lot of this book reminded me of the the kind of the scholarly feel of Tolkien in the way that he um, completely internalized an entire culture's worth of myths before he turned out the the uh, Lord of the Rings and his works all his works at Earth. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so effective. And so how you have also. Uh, internalized all of these cultures. Uh, does that change the way you think you're going to look, write modern fiction, more modern fiction? Um, are you going to come back to, are you going to keep writing supernatural fiction? I think you've got a knack for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would like to keep doing it all as long as I can. I just finished a book about the Nez Perce War of 1877. And, uh, and lately, I've been reading a lot of books by that German writer, Hans Fallada. He writes a lot about the Weimar period. And I'm thinking, I would love to um, write some hyper-realistic book about down-and-out people, the way that he did it. So why get stuck just doing one thing? Well, that's what that's the, the joy of reading, is that you can, and I would presume writing, that you can go from one to the other and, you know, is to, to mix it up, as it were. Yeah, it's more fun for me that way. I've been speaking with William T. Volman. His new book is Last Stories and Other Stories. Thank you for joining me, William. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.